Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20 is our scripture lesson. I commend to you the word of God. Galatians 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slave you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid, Paul writes, I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel, an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I'm present with you. Verse 19, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and exchange my tone for I am perplexed about you. May God add the blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. So we began this great book, and and the Apostle Paul who wrote this book comes right out of the gate, chapter 1, defending and arguing his apostolic calling and authority and the truth of the gospel in which he preached to Galatia. Then in Galatians 2, 15 and 16, if you don't have that marked in your Bibles, mark it, is a very clear, succinct truth and the reality about our justification, that we are justified, he says in chapter 2, verse 16, That we are justified by faith. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Very simply, why? Because, he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then we moved on from that succinct reality of our justification. Remember, justification if you're new here, it's like a coin, two sides to one coin. Through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, we've been pardoned, we've been forgiven. He pays our sin debt. He dies for our sins. And the other side of the coin is the imputation of righteousness, that Christ is the only person, the God-man, who lived the perfect life, obeyed the law completely, and by faith in him, his righteousness is imputed to us, reckoned to us, counted to us in the counting term, and that makes us just before God. Pardon and imputation of righteousness makes us right before God, just before God, declared not guilty in a courtroom of God. And when he finishes that in chapter 2, verse 15 to 16, he goes right into a vital question that who belongs to the family of God through Abraham, which is the promise given to Abraham by God. Certainly the Galatians were children of God. They belonged to God. The Spirit, he says, is the mark and the seal of a Christian. And the Spirit of God was given to the Galatians, believers, by faith. Rather than observance of the law, chapter 3, 1 through 5. Believers are now children of Abraham. They enjoy the blessing of Abraham. Why? Because they share the faith of Abraham, chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Remember the argument. Paul is making the reason he's writing this letter. There were Judaizers who came into the church and began to teach. In order to be a Christian, you have to believe on Jesus, have faith in Christ, but now join that faith with the works of Moses, the Mosaic law, to live up to a certain standard. And the way into that law is the right of circumcision. And Abraham was given the right of circumcision in chapter 17 of Genesis. And Judaizers were saying, listen, faith in Christ is great. He died for your sins, that's great. But now you have to add the law of Moses. You've got to live a certain way. And then you become a true Christian. 
And he says, no, that, that's not the way it works. In fact, he makes an argument. Abraham was given the right of circumcision in chapter 17 of Genesis as a seal of that covenant. But it was in chapter 15 before chapter 17 that he was declared just before God because of his faith. Which one came first? Paul tells him. Justification by faith alone came before the right of circumcision. In fact, he'll say in uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, if you're basing your justification, your right acceptance before God on works of the law, guess what? You're cursed. Chapter 3, verse 10, uh, 12, for all who rely on the works of the law to be accepted by God are under a curse. Why? Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law. How many people do that? Zero, except Jesus. But praise God, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus takes that curse that we deserve upon himself on the cross. We learn that the Mosaic law was given for a purpose. In the past two weeks, that's what we've learned, that it was a temporary covenant and it was in subordination to the covenant, the promise of Abraham. He would send them a son, would be born, the Messiah. And therefore, the believers are no longer under the, the reign and the tutelage and the tutor of the law. We're under grace. We said that the law reveals the character of God. We have to remember that. The law is good and holy, Paul says. The law of God reveals the nature of God, the character of God, his righteousness, his holiness. As Calvin said, it's a, it's a mirror. We see the beauty and, and the glory and the perfection of God and yet it reflects through us our own sin and it rushes us and it brings us to the place of recognizing our sin and our need for Jesus. It was a temporary guardian, he says in chapter 3, that leads us to Christ. Last week we learned that our union with Christ brings in another dynamic reality. Justification by faith alone brings in another dynamic truth. Pastor Chris did a great job last week showing us that when we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, forgiven, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness now is our account, we're righteous not by our own deeds, but by His, we become sons of God, children of God, heirs of the promise given to Abraham now is ours. Again, not through the law, but through faith. Chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7. And Pastor Chris said this last week. All who are justified by faith in Christ are the deeply and dearly loved children of God. In God's family, there's no favoritism or advantage given to any particular group of people. That's something the Galatians needed to hear, end quote. We need to hear that too. They ended last week. We're going to pick it up this week and next week, actually, because that's the text gives us. Digging into this idea of slavery, of bondage, and freedom. It really started in chapter 3, verse 22, but it goes to chapter 4 all the way through to the end. And Paul is saying that a person is in bondage to the principles of this world. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. But yet we are given the promise. We were treated like slaves. Uh, uh, Chris pointed out in chapter, th- chapter 4, uh, verse 1 and 2, we were treated like slaves, but we are really heirs of the promise. When, when, when? When the, when the fullness of time came, you have your Bible, chapter 4, verse 4. Right before our text. We were slaves. We were treated like slaves. We were guardians until Christ came. We inherit the, the, the promise. We become children of God. Verse 4. When the fullness of time had come. We went from slaves. We went to guard, from being a guard, under guardianship to children of God. When the, when, when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. Came to earth. Born of a woman. The Virgin Mary. Born under the law as a Jew to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoptions. We, the children of God, adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying Abba, Aramaic, Abba, Father, Dad. In the term of endearment, the spirit of God draws us to Christ Christ brings us into fellowship and community and union, excuse me, with him. And we are now reconciled to the Father. We cry out, Abba, Father. Chapter 4, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. Children of God. The promise of Abraham. Given that Christ would come. But that's not enough. Paul, Paul, Paul will see today that's why the sermon title is Paul's Pastoral Plea. We see a change in Paul's tone here. 
He's concerned. He's concerned he, he, that these Galatians were reverting back to slavery. They were going back under the Mosaic law, in essence, being slaves again. And that's why he keeps pounding at them. Don't go back. Don't go back. And this wonderful passage really reveals to us the heart of Pastor Paul, the apostle. I hope you hear that this morning. Three movements. First one is the reprimand articulated. He makes it very clear what's going on in their myth, chapter 4, 8 through 11. Then he reviews, uh, the review assess. He, he reminds them of the days that he was with them and what took place during those days. And then the renewed anticipation. He, he, he was hoping that something would not happen and that something else would happen. And we're going to look at that this morning. So number one, he says to them, formally... Now, keep this in context, right? So, verse 7, you're no longer slaves, you're sons, you're no longer under bondage, you're children of God, you're heirs, you're you're not under the law, you're not in bondage under the law. That's all that is true. Abba, Father, verse 7. Then he goes to verse 8 and he says, formerly, before that took place, that's what formerly is, before that, let's go back a minute. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. You were. But now, verse 9, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn again back? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. You see, Christianity is not a form of slavery. It's a reality of sonship and daughtership. One of the main key themes in the work of redemption, the salvation work of God throughout the Bible is the word redemption. It's part of our core values, EIC, eternity identity community. The first one, eternity, is the gospel of redemption. Believers are, before they came to know God, the Bible says are under sin, chapter 3.22, held and captive to the law, enslaved to the elementary things of the world. The point is that when we're slaves to the law and we're slaves to sin, we have this dominion and tyranny of sin in our lives. Elsewhere, Paul says that unbelievers, before they came to know Christ, are enslaved to sin. That we are we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We were in, under the dominion and power of the enemy. We, we were carried along by our own worldly and fleshly desires, Ephesians chapter 2. That is why when, when someone is converted to Christ, someone comes to faith in Christ, the word redemption is used. There, there is freedom. There, there, is, there is freedom from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the mastery and tyranny of, of sin in your life. Does that mean we never sin? No, I wish it was the case. But we've been set free from its power. And we're going to talk about what that looks like in sanctification. And the liberation, this liberation is by Christ alone. And that's why all glory and, and praise and honor goes to him and him alone. Without Jesus, we're enslaved, captivated by sin, by the rules of man-made religion. Even atheists are captivated by rules of man-made religion. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But when we come to Christ, we're released and we're set free. So that is why Paul is asking, like, what the heck happened? Like, what's going on? Why would you go back? Why would you go back to slavery? Why would you go back to to the thing that was enslaving you when you have been set free? You used to worship idols. You went to the temples. In that day, uh, the temples, people lived licentious and immoral lifestyles. In Galatia, they had their own temples. Verse 9, the principles are worthless and weak. The principles of, of, um, of the world. That Greek term, principles, if you look at it in verse 4, excuse me, um, it is first in verse 3, elementary principles of the world. Then we see it again in verse um, by nature are not gods. Verse 9, elementary principle of the world. That Greek phrase there was used of pagan religion. It, it, was, it was a way to describe the elements of the material world, the visible world, like, like you know, earth and wind and, and fire. I know some of you thinking right now, I know a couple of those are good songs, man. Reasons. <laughs> Do you remember? But not, that's not what we're talking about. So the pagans would have these, these earth, they probably got their name from there, I bet you if you look it up, I don't know that. And I like the group, but I'm just saying. It's showing my age too. But anyway, so the pagans would have these gods of the earth, 
So if you, you know, if you didn't have a good harvest, you'd worship, you were, you were, you were bound to that God and you would serve that God or, you know, the, the gods of beauty, the gods of sex, and they had these different gods uh, of the sun, the moon. Uh, Abraham came from the moon goddess worship back in the day before he became a, a follower of God. So they would sacrifice to these gods. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes it clear, because they, they did the same thing in Corinth, that those gods were really no gods at all. But when they were sacrificing to these false gods, there were what? Demons. There was evil spirits behind this, this idol worship. And he warns the Galatians, actually reminding them, listen, you guys were set free from your idol worship. You were set free from the enslavery of those things that were by nature not gods at all, but they were enslaving you. And the Galatians really are no different than anyone who lives outside a relationship with God through Christ. We don't make carbon images. Maybe we don't worship the sun god. Maybe with all that rain a couple of months ago, some of you might have been. I don't know. But, you know, we don't make images like that. But we do worship things that we try to justify ourselves with, treat as gods. They become our religion. We, we, we need to have it. We need to, 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 to worship in such a way that we feel like we have meaning and, and purpose and you could give me what I need. That, that kind of worship happens today. Tim Keller writes this, if we put our greatest hope in gaining wealth, that's our hope, that's our religion, we will be controlled and enslaved. We will be completely under the power of money. If we're not doing well at gaining it, we'll be devastated. And even if we do get enough, we'll be disappointed and seek more. If we treat things that are not God's as though they are, we become slaves to them spiritually, end quote. It could be good things that become idle things, like children, grandchildren, work, play, money, power, prestige. All those things may not be bad enough themselves, but when they become the ultimate thing that I got to have in order to justify myself, they become an idle thing. That's what he's saying. Whatever it is, whatever gives us reason to live, whatever justifies our existence, makes us feel like we matter, becomes our idol. You know how you know more about idols in your life? I've said this before, but let me, let me say it again. Have it taken from you. Then you'll know that was an idol. Oh, no, it's not an idol, really. Lose it and see if you don't disintegrate. That will be your idol. And now you've got to remember what Paul is saying here. Paul is teaching the Galatian church and, and preaching against and defending against legalism, against Judaizers coming into the church and saying, Christians are faith in Christ and work of the law. So notice what he's saying here. He's pointing to the Galatian churches saying you were once enslaved to idols. Now you're going to be what? Enslaved to legalism. Justification through meticulous biblical morality. Trying to keep the law of Moses. Moral performance is just as enslavement as outright paganism you remember those days you were enslaved to those idols now if you go back look what he says in verse um, 10 you're observing months and days and seasons and years that's 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 under the mosaic law the judaizers had stepped in not only said you need to be circumcised and follow the law but they began to follow the festivals and the years in which were in the old testament law he's like if you're gonna if you're gonna leave paganism and it's in slavery, and it's idol worship, and you're going back to the law of Moses as your means of justification, the law of God. The law Moses handed down, if that's your means of justification, it's the same as paganism. Can you imagine? You think the Judaizers hated him before? They really hate him now. What he's saying is, for us today, is if we are trying to earn our acceptance before God, if we're trying to work our way, we're no different than Hindus and Muslims that worship false gods. If following Christ is a list of do's and don'ts in order to make you feel good about yourself before God, to justify yourself with the help of God in the day of judgment, we're no different than any other world religion. Because religion is, I work my way to God. The gospel is, God has worked his way toward me. He sent his son into the world to die an atoning sacrifice for my sin, to live a life I could never live, to die a death I should have died in my place. And by faith in him, I'm made just. 
not by sacrificing and appeasing to the moon god or the sun god. What's interesting about this text, and I like to point this stuff out as a teacher of the Bible, Paul will write in Romans 14, 6, the one who observes certain days observes it in honor of the Lord. Do you want to observe a day in honor of the Lord? Go right ahead. In Colossians, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or to a new moon or to a Sabbath. Almost sounds contradictory here. Well, here's the difference. One is elective and one is mandatory. You want to celebrate birthdays. You want to celebrate certain days. Go right ahead. Just don't make it mandatory about my justification because it's by faith alone and Christ alone. That's what they were doing. They were making it mandatory. There's the difference. There's the difference. An eternal difference. And the Galatians need to be reminded that they've been set free from the slavery to idols, to worshiping false gods, to the free grace offered to them in Christ Jesus. And once we know the, this freedom as children of God, we shouldn't go back. Don't go back. So whether, you're, whether, you're, whether, whether you are trying to keep the law to be justified or whether you're trying to be your law, law onto yourself, the religious or the irreligious were still enslaved. That, that's what Paul is saying. And here's the scary part. If you remember the prodigal son story, I like to call it the tale of two sons because it wasn't one son, it was two. Who is easier to reach? The irreligious or the religious? It was the irreligious. Sometimes when, we're, when we know we're sinning, or we, at least we know we're not in any kind of rule-keeping before God, sometimes it's easier for that person to, sec- to see their sin than it is for the righteous person, the religious person, to see that they need grace. Not always. God works miracles to everybody, right? But the prodigal son went home. And was received by the father. The other son, the religious son, was outside in the field. (laughs) And he remained outside the presence of the father. Sometimes that's easier. What Paul says sets us free is this. Look, verse 9. That they come to know God. It was the preaching of the gospel. It's what set them free. Christianity is not about trusting in yourself as Savior and Lord of your life. It's coming to know God. It's coming to have a relationship with God. It's coming not only to have the knowledge of God, but to have a personal relationship with God. It involves an intimate encounter with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, in redemptive work, in redemptive history. It's not primarily about what we know. It's about, really, first about whom we know. That's what he's saying. That you have come to know God. But it gets better, right? I mean, that's great enough. I've come to know the Lord. Praise God. Not enough. Look what it says. Rather to be known by God. There's a difference. The word rather means more importantly. Paul is saying, how can you go back to idols since you know God? Or more importantly, that you are known by God. So yes, we come to know him, but he comes to know us first. We love him because he first loved us. The word know goes back to the Hebrew yada, to know. It, it refers to God choosing, setting his affection upon someone. And the initiative we see of the membership, this union with this heir, this, this coming into the family of God is his initiative. I love J.R. Packer's quote on this. He says this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it all, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. He knows me as one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters, end quote. Our slavery is partly due to obliviousness of God. Our sonship consists of knowing God and him knowing us. Can we just, just for a minute be honest for a moment? All of us, including the pastors, have an ebb and flow in our relationship with God, knowing God. Some days you just feel certain ways. Some days you don't. It, it's ebb and flow. You have those mountaintop experiences, 
You know, you're singing, you're thinking, man, we are, I am so close to Jesus. And about three seconds later, you got this wicked thought in your mind. You're going, where did that come from? Or you get in your car and you're arguing on the way home. You just have a great worship, right? It ebb and flows. That, that's the Christian life. It ebb and flows. Our knowing of God ebb and flows. But God's knowing of us is absolutely fixed and concrete. It doesn't ebb and flow. Let that sink in. We ebb and flow in our relationship with him, but he doesn't with us. He knows us. And Paul reminds us that the gospel shows us that we don't need to earn our way to God, to make ourselves lovable to God through some moral record in the gospel. He already knows us. Man-made religion, slavery is appeasing God. God has come to us in Christ. There's a huge difference. And the reason sometimes I think um, that we are uncertain is because we're still earning our way and rather than trusting and relying upon the finished work of Christ. That's what we have to keep going. That's what Paul is saying. Don't go back. Remember the finished work of Christ. Don't be like the Israelites. Remember in Egypt? They're they're in slavery, harsh, harsh slavery. They're set free. They're in the wilderness. They get mad. They turn to Moses. They turn to the people. They're like, we need a new leader. This guy brought us out here in the middle of nowhere. We're going to die out here. It was, we had leaks. We had, it was so much fun back in Egypt, really. I mean, once they hit some difficulties, some struggles, man, they just want to go back. They forgot what it was like. And like I say, before we judge, let's relate, right? How often do we run into problems and circumstances and hardship, and then all of a sudden we see our past is more promising than the future? The way forward sometimes is hard. The way back we remember, not correctly, but it seems so right and so good and so easy, and, 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 and we're tempted to go back. More promising back there. It's more familiar back there. Been there, done that myself. Going back requires little, if anything, faith at all. But moving forward, we walk by faith, as we just sung. And in the moment of temptation, we find that our old affections for that idolatry, the the worthless absurdities, these, these little habits that calls out to us and pleads us, don't leave me, don't leave me. And we have to walk by faith. Because the great and central base of Christian assurance is not our hearts that are set upon God. It's God's heart who's set upon us. And our hearts need to rest and grasp the reality of the work of Christ, that we are known by him. We don't need to to reinforce his self-image when Christ, as the Bible says, is our all in all. He's our hope of glory. Paul says in verse 11, and again, he's starting to soften now. He says in verse 11, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. He, he's not trying to get you know, himself a pat on the back. He's not whining and complaining. Up to now, he's been this great theologian. He, he's fighting false teachers, false teachers, false teaching, calling it damnable in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He publicly confronted the apostle Peter in chapter 2 about his hypocrisy. Now he's called, he had called the Galatians fools. They're being bewitched. And now he's saying, I'm... I'm I've labored over you in vain. I've had this labor over you, and I feel like it's in vain. I want to change my tone. I'm your pastor. I love you. And his life, his, his ministry, his, his preaching were inextricably tied to those that came to faith through his ministry. And you see Paul now getting real personal because his heart is breaking he doesn't want you, them to squander. He would not want us to squander all the things that he had done. The reprimand articulated. Now he gets into the review. Verse 12. I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You can, you can almost hear the frustration, I think. You can almost hear the, the exasperation of, the, uh, of his tone with the Galatians. But you also now begin to see his love and affection for them. In fact, four times in chapter 4, Paul calls them brothers. He called them fools in chapter 3. Now he calls them brothers. Look down at verse 19. He calls them little children. Paul had reason. He had earned the right to talk tough with them, but now he is, his heart is breaking over them. His whole purpose was to, to win them back, to not go back to slavery, to stand firm in Christ. And Paul longed for them 
to become like him in his Christian faith and deliver, be delivered from evil influences and false teachers and be free in Christ, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And in this verse here, if, if you're there with me, verse 12, in the original language, it, the, the, the sentence begins with an imperative, become, become as I am. It's the first imperative of the book, the command, become as I am. I also have become as you are, brothers, I entreat you. That's, that's, the way, that's the way the structure is set up. And I think it's the reason for that because Paul is a recovering Pharisee, right? He, he's freed from the Mosaic law. He remembers what it was like, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. I myself have confidence in the flesh. Circumcised on the eighth day, I'm a people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I gain, I count loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. He's a recovering Pharisee. He's free from that works-based righteousness. And he says to them, become as I am. Don't go back. Be freed from that. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in love. A few years ago, we did a study in 1 Corinthians. Great study. It was a great time together as a church. And I got to chapter 9, verse 19. I went back in my notes, and this is what I said. Chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. I said this. If there was a single passage of Scripture that so defines for me our aim and purpose as a church, it is this one. That's bold words, right? This is what it says, the Apostle Paul writing. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them to the gospel. To the Jew, I become a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people by all means that I might save some. He's not talking about dying on a cross. He's talking about the gospel he preaches. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, he said, that I may share with them, those who come to faith, that I may share with them in its blessings, the gospel blessings. We'll get to that in a minute too. Paul became like others so that others could know Christ. That's called contextualization. He knew how to become so integrated with the people, the culture, that he could explain the gospel in words that people could understand. He did not take a separatist approach. That's where the word Pharisee comes from. Don't talk to me. You're not a Jew. You don't know God. He he did not take a a, a, a syncristic way into it, like I'll just go like the rest of the world. He's willing to go, not compromising the gospel, not compromising the message of the gospel, the integrity of the gospel. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, but he was willing to step into the culture so that people can know Christ. He ate with them, he played with them, he talked with them. I I can assure you that Paul did not grow up in the Galatian culture, but he says, I became like you, become like me. He learned the questions, the hopes, the fears, the sensitivities to their life so that he can engage them with the gospel. There's a difference between emulating the culture and joining in their sin and not being separate from the world. Emulating it. And there's a difference between emulating and escaping. I want nothing to do with you. We don't want to do either one of those things. We don't want to run from unbelievers who don't know Christ. We want to love them. We want to not emulate. We don't want to escape. We want to engage. Loving people, understanding their hopes, dreams, and and hurts and pains so that we can love them and demonstrate the gospel to them so that, that we get an opportunity to declare the gospel to them with truth and words and the message of the gospel. And notice what else he did. He not only went into their culture. Look at verse 13. Gospel ministry is just not engaging the culture. It's about suffering. Look at verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I first preached the gospel to you. You hear what he said? 
It was by the providence of God. It was by the providence of God that he was sent to Galatia. It wasn't even on his radar. He was suffering by the hand of God and brought to the church with this bodily ailment for the purpose of God using his suffering to proclaim the gospel. Romans 8, in all things, both pleasing and painful, God works for the good for those who love him. God doesn't promise to take suffering, no matter what the the multi-billion dollar preachers tell you on TV. We've been through this before. If you haven't seen the the movie, The Gospel, uh, The American Gospel, we have it here at the church, You you need to get it. About the false preachers. That's what these guys like, false preachers. He's saying, no, no, I was suffering. My suffering brought me to you. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians when he had a thorn in the flesh. You remember that story? It might have been the same thing. We don't know. But Paul has this thorn in the flesh, this, this bodily ailment. And, and he says to the Lord, take this from me, take this from me, take this from me. Three times. And the Lord said, no, no, no. And Paul says this thorn humbled him. It kept him from being conceited. And not only humbled him, it strengthened him. Chapter 12, verse 9, that, that the Christ's power may rest on me in the midst of this suffering. It brought him into a a deeper understanding of the sufficiency of God's grace. My grace is sufficient for you, God told him. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And here he is brought to Galatia. His bodily ailment, his sickness, was not a liability of the gospel that some would teach you that. It was the cause of it. It what brought him there. Verse 14, and my condition was a trial. You didn't scorn me. Or despise me, but you received me as an angel, Christ himself. That's how y'all treated me when I was there. Now, here's what's going on. You think, all right, he's coming to a church. He has this bodily ailment. Imagine coming in maybe in a wheelchair. I think I I I know what, I, I have an idea of what that was. We'll get that in a minute. But imagine treating somebody who has a bodily ailment, some sort of disability, some sort of condition with scorn and despising. Little word means to spit. You're like, well, what's going on? Why would, they, why would anybody treat somebody that way? Well, that's 2019 in Albany. This is not then. Back in ancient times, in ancient culture, disease, disabilities, uh, um, uh, suffering indicated that you stood on the wrong side of the gods, the small g's, uh, of divine displeasure. You were being cursed. Something was not right with you and the people you hung around with. Even that day, even in the day of Jesus, the Jewish people taught that as well. Just read Job. And I was three friends came to Job. It was such a great help. Job, you did something wrong. Figure out what it is. You're a sinner. That's why God is doing this to you. A great help. You remember Jesus' disciples came to him about a blind man. What did they say? Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Some people have said, and I, 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 this is the way I lean, it's not, it, this is my conjecture, this is my understanding of the Apostle Paul, if it's not yours, that's okay, but I think it has something to do with his eyesight, it says it will be plucked out, uh, you would pluck out and give me your eyes, um, theologians believe that in the Galatian region, there was, uh, right bef- bef- in the southern area, there was a lot of mosquitoes, maybe got malaria, which, which can contact and, and make a mess of your eyes and, and uh, attach itself to your eyes. And he says, um, you know, that you would actually have plucked out an eye if you could have. That could be the reason. I think it is. I think it probably was ugly and it looked bad. And yet they received him who? They received him as an angel of God of Christ himself. They respected him. They loved him. Not because he looked great, but because he was an apostle of Jesus. Jesus said, if you receive one of mine, you receive me. And that's what he did. They recognized him as an apostle. And it wasn't so much, it was definitely that, that he loved them and he brought the gospel even with this suffering, but it was that they loved him. They didn't scorn on him. They didn't spit on him. Look at verse 15. What has become of this blessedness? I testify to you, if it was possible, you would have gouged out your eye. They don't have that back then, right? They have no eye surgery. So he's using, you know, uh, hyperbole. If you would have ripped out your eye, you would have gave it to me. Here's, here's another eye, Paul. Your eye don't look that great. Take mine. Right? Have I become your enemy now? Verse 16. Remember the blessedness? Now, now I'm your enemy? It's a rhetorical question. He's still preaching the gospel. He still loves them. The cross, the empty tomb, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 
But they started to reject that gospel. They were unwilling to hear the truth. They're treating Paul like an enemy. The very message that he brought to them that was received, read chapters 13 and 14 of Acts, with joy and, and love throughout the Galatian region when he was there preaching the gospel. And now it's starting to get cold. He's like, remember those days. We had so much fun in the word of God. People were coming to, to Christ. Uh, the word of God was, was proclaimed and churches were being planted. It was a wonderful time of ministry. Do you remember that? You guys loved me. You would have gave me your eye. The Jews were trying to kill me. Just read chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. Paul is saying, you're breaking my heart. You want to break a pastor's heart? That's what you do. You're involved in the church. You're involved in growing in the word of God. You're, you're involved in ministry and then just go astray. That breaks a pastor's heart more than anything. Because we love each other. You love me, I love you. The other pastors, we love you. And we know that you love us. And Paul's saying, listen, don't go back to that idols. Don't go back to that slavery. You're killing me. I love you. It's not about me. It's not about Paul. It's about Christ. But it breaks a pastor's heart. That's what he's saying. Ministry's tough. And when you love people, sometimes the people you love the most hurt you the most. I was told that when I first got in ministry. And that's true. Just keep your eyes on Jesus and press on. That's, that's what you do. You just press on. What are they trying to do? They're trying to shut you up. Verse 17. Let me ask you this question just real quick before we move on. And don't answer. And I'm not saying it because it's me as a pastor. There are other people in your life that have ministered to you, that have loved you, that have cared for you, that have prayed for you. Appreciate them. And I need all y'all stop me at the door, okay? I, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, not more than just me and the other pastors here. Appreciate those people that have lifted you up and prayed for you. Verse 17. They, false teachers, make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you would make much of them. What's their goal? Their goal is for them to shut them out, to put the bar up to, so they can't reach their Christ. You got to work at the law. But they're making so much, oh, you are such a good, oh, you keep striving at that law all along saying, Pat me on the back. They make much of you because they want to be made much of. That's what he's saying. They're flattering you. They're making much of you so that you can flatter and make much of them. A gospel-centered, Christ-exalting ministry, whether it's pastoral ministry or it's any ministry that any of us do, has one hero. And it ain't you and it ain't me. His name is Jesus. That's a gospel-centered ministry. You want to keep your eyes off of the person and eyes upon Jesus. They love, even the love that Paul had for them, I'm sure, was about the gospel. These false teachers were saying, you need to love me. You need to flatter me. You need to give me all the accolades. Why? Because they were work-based salvation. If you are trying to earn your salvation, if you're trying to work your way into a right relationship with God, acceptance with God, you need to be flattered. In fact, if that's the case, become a pastor. They're a work-based religion. They're a work-based salvation. They needed the pat on the back. That's the point. Do you see that there? Not, they, they wanted to use the churches of Galatia, these false teachers. They wanted to use them for their personal gain. Here's the suffering apostle serving them with purposeful pain. Verse 18. It's always good to make much of. Zeal is good. It, the purpose is the issue. Why? Paul says, but only when I'm present with you and not only when I'm present with you. I think what he's saying is, listen, again, his heart is showing. They want to make much of you for a wrong reason. I want to make much of you not only when I'm present, but when I'm away. When I'm away, I'm writing this letter. I want to make much of you because I want to make much of Christ. Paul's always pointing them back to Jesus their zeal for the truth is diminishing. Their loyalty uh, to Christ is diminishing. And, Christ, and, and Paul is saying, listen, keep your eyes on Jesus. It's breaking my heart. Whether I'm with you or not, there's a good purpose, and the good purpose is Christ. And that's what we'll get to, and he ends, uh, number three. I put number two there, but it's number three, final. The renewal anticipated. Now we really see the heart of Paul. Verse 19. My little children. Technion is the Greek. It is very, very warm, loving, and affectionate. 
Only one time in all of Scripture does Paul use this term. In all 13 letters he wrote, he never used the term but here. The Apostle John has used it several times, but not Paul. And Paul says, my little children. My little children. Most of the time, he proclaims himself as a father who loves his kids. This time, what does he do? He says, I'm in anguish. Look what it says, verse 19. My little children, whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He he takes on this motherly figure to this church. And he's saying, I am, I'm in anguish of childbirth. I, I, I'm once again, I was there the first time in suffering and I was in anguish for you and I was preaching the gospel for you. I was like a mother in labor and, and declaring the gospel and now I'm doing the same thing over again until Christ is formed in you. The word form is a Greek word. It, it refers to the act of giving outward expression to an inner nature. Catch that. Outward expression to an inner nature. In other words, when we say that person had great form during their tennis match or ice skating or anything else, baseball, whatever, they have great form, it's the outward expression of the intrinsic reality. Okay? What he's saying is, I know you're a Christian. I know you have the Spirit of God. We talked about this already. But, but, There's a little of this beauty of Christ in your life being shown if you want to go back to your legalism. That's what he's saying. And like every good pastor, Paul wants people not to be dependent on him, but upon Christ. And he uses this image of labor. 1 Thessalonians 2, we were gentle among you, Paul says, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. Now he's saying, listen, we're still in labor even though I, I've gone through this before, even though we, you have given birth and the churches have been planted, man, I'm going back into labor for you. You, you. you guys are going in the wrong direction and you're causing me to suffer labor again. Now, I've never been in labor. I, but I can say with confidence, 100% confidence, that any woman has been in labor and has the baby is not thinking, let me go back to labor again. I'm just saying. Paul is saying, listen, I'm in labor again. I, I want my child out. I'm sure you ladies love to be pregnant, but there's a time where it's like, let's go. I'm done. Again, I don't know this firsthand. I'm just saying. We're done. I, I, I've been this long enough. Come on out. He's saying, I, I'm, I'm still in labor. I, I'm, I, I, want, my, I want the children the the freed children of Christ to be born and to mature and to live independently and I'm laboring until that day comes, until Christ is formed in you. That is gospel ministry. Every pastor's goal, not the favor of men, but the formation of Christ, as Calvin said. If ministers wish to be something, let them labor to form Christ, not themselves in the hearers, end quote. This is about sanctification. We're going to look at chapter 5 and 6 and see. This is about being more like Christ. John Stott, the difference between Paul and the false teachers is now perfectly clear. The false teachers were seeking themselves to dominate the Galatians. Paul longed that Christ be formed in them. They had a selfish eye on their own prestige and position, but Paul was prepared to sacrifice himself for them, to be in travail until Christ is formed in them. The Galatians were turning to another gospel. Verse 20 as we close. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. He's heartbroken. He's saying I want to change my tone and someday I hope to be with you to change my tone. But right now I'm not present. I don't have a cell phone. We can't FaceTime. I'm writing this letter but I'm hoping and praying that Christ be formed in you. And I think that was Paul's anticipation. I think he was hoping for their renewal as they continually to press in the gospel that we've been saved by faith alone in Christ alone. I think he anticipated their love and, 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 and their turning around and coming back to the gospel that his dear little children would have Christ formed in them. That's why he's not just going, all right, well, they're a lost cause. Uh, you know what? We preached the gospel. They got saved. And now they're going back to idolatry. It's okay. No big deal. No, 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 no. Paul loved them. 
The eternal gospel was at stake. He had to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered by the saints. We should be a people who walk with God. To know him. Not simply because we know him, but because he knows us. And that's what the communion table is, right? The communion table should not only remind us of the, of the person and work of Jesus Christ, but it also should press into our hearts God's grace, God's unmerited grace and favor toward us, the sinners. And Christ is in heaven, his spirit is here, and he is inviting us to come to share at the table, to remember his perfect Life To remember his substitutionary death in your place. To remember his body that was broken. His blood was shed. And that is a gift to you to be received by grace through faith in Christ. That's what the communion table is for. And if you're a follower of Christ, the table is for you this morning. If you're not a follower of Christ, pray. Seek the face of God. Ask Christ to come into your life. And if you repent of your sin, you believe on the Lord Jesus, come. If not, we're glad you're here. We want to talk to you. I'll be here. We can talk. We can pray. We want to show you the truth of the gospel through the word, in the spirit, and point you to Jesus Christ. Don't go back to slavery. If you're a follower of Christ this morning, here's my, here's my, my word to you this morning. Don't go back to slavery. Don't try to earn your acceptance and trust in God today, today or any other day. If you want to be Christ formed in you, drink deeply of the justification offered to you by grace through faith in Christ alone. And remember the gospel. Luther said, pound it in your head. Pound it in your head. Let the table remind us of how, as Tim Keller likes to say, how deeply sinful we are that Christ had to die, but how loved and valued we are that he was glad to. Let's pray. Father, we are indebted to you that you by grace alone and faith alone would come and would rescue and deliver us from the tyranny of sin from the penalty of sin from the power of sin as a gift to us through Jesus Christ our Lord and father as we take communion as we call the church to repentance help us to repent of our idols to repent of those things that we are resting in trusting in trying to find our satisfaction try to find our justification in meaning in life and let it be in you and you alone that although we are sinners we are rescued by the the death burial and resurrection of Jesus help us to confess our sins well help us to repent well but also help us to celebrate well that by the death of Jesus by his shed blood we are now reconciled Children in union with Christ now and forevermore. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.